Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our Wednesday morning Bible study. Today, we're going to be looking at our walkthrough of the epistles of John. Last week, we did our introduction to the epistles of John, specifically looking at 1 John. As we said last week, 2 John and 3 John are very short uh, epistles, just a few verses on each uh, epistle. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on those. We will briefly touch on them at the end of our lesson today. But primarily, our focus is going to be on 1 John. And as we introduced the epistle last week, we said that the major issue in the epistles of John, and especially the first epistle of John, is the issue of these false teachers who are attacking the doctrine, the teaching, and the person of Jesus Christ. And John calls these false teachers anti-Christ. He does not have in mind this end-time antichrist figure, but literally antichrist is one who is against Christ, against the anointed one. The word Christos, where we get Christ, means anointing or the anointed one when speaking about Jesus. So these antichrists have come into the church and they have deceived people, so much so that a group of people in these churches have disfellowshipped and has left the churches. And what these antichrists were teaching was that Jesus did not physically come in the flesh, that Jesus is not the anointed one, that Jesus is not the Son of God, and they deny the relationship between the Father and the Son. And therefore, that's why John calls these false teachers antichrists pitting that against those in the church who are Christ followers. So the one, one of the reasons that John writes this epistle is to give the warning about the Antichrist. It is to come against their teaching or their denial about who Jesus is and to encourage the church that is there that they are the true children of God. And they are the true children of God through certain uh, tests, if you will, for lack of a better term, that they can test their faith, that they can know for sure that they are the children of God. The, The crux of the test is their love for one another. And that's what John emphasizes over and over again is the believer's love. You know, Jesus told his disciples that all men would know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So that's a major theme. And what we're going to do is we're going to see these themes played out. Not just the theme about Jesus and love, but how love ties into the theme of who Jesus is. And if we know Jesus then we will know the Father. And if we know the Father, we will walk in the light. And if we walk in the light, we'll have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, and that fellowship will be proven by our love for one another. So as John is writing this epistle, we're going to see these themes go in and out, in and out, in and out, as he re-emphasizes these major themes of who Christ is, what it means to walk in the light, and not live a life of habitual sin, and also the love that the brothers should have, brothers and sisters should have for one another. 
So we are going to jump into the epistle today and do a walkthrough. And on our screen, we're going to break down the major sections. You know, and 1 John, because it goes in and out of these themes, is not the easiest uh, book to form a cohesive outline because it does jump back and forth so much. But we're going to put our notes on the screen and just walk through 1 John and then briefly look at 2 John and 3 John. When we come to the first section of the epistle of John, we find the prelude in the first four verses. John opens his epistle by emphasizing the reality of the incarnation. And the incarnation is God being made flesh. It's Jesus who is the divine uh, God, one with the Father, coming and being born of a virgin and having a human birth and being 100% man as well as being 100% God. So this mystery of God becoming flesh, Christ taking on flesh, is called the incarnation. And this was one of the doctrines and the teachings about Christ that these antichrist were denying, that Jesus had come in the flesh. So what John is doing, he opens this letter, and as we noted last week, there is no traditional greeting. There is no introduction of who the author is. There are no who the recipients of the letter are. He goes right into his defense about the person of Jesus Christ. So he says, that which was from the beginning. Now that's reminiscent of John's writing in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John begins this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on, down in John chapter 1 in the Gospel, it says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. So when John begins his letter, that which was from the beginning... That which we have heard. When he says we, in verse number one, he's giving a source of authoritative testimony. This is what we, Jesus' disciples, experienced. We know that he came in the flesh because we saw him. We looked upon him. Our hands have touched him. He was the word of life and we were there to see him. So John bases his testimony on an eyewitness account. He emphasizes a physical reality that is the groundwork for everything else that he is about to write. He goes on to describe Jesus in verse number 2 as the life was made manifest. And we have seen it, we testify it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. So God, through Jesus, gives life. John testifies and proclaims life and eternal life as coming from the Father to us. Jesus was the life in person of God's coming age. Both the life of God himself and the gift of life from God to the world. What is more, the fellowship between the Father and the Son has now been extended to all, to all who know and trust and love Jesus. John considers it a joy to write to his audience. So he goes on to say in verse number three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. 
So he's saying, we have seen Jesus, we've touched him, he was made manifest to us, and now we are proclaiming him to you. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So here we see a purpo- the purpose for John writing this first section. is in his words, that you may have fellowship with us. Now, obviously, this book was written primarily to believers. But when you read this first chapter of 1 John, it seems that John is speaking not to believers that are already in fellowship, but to those who are not yet in the fellowship of the church. Uh, He uses the term that you may have fellowship with us. So it seems he's speaking to outsiders that he wants to come into the church to believe in Christ and to have fellowship. And indeed, if that's his intention, is for this first chapter to speak to a wider audience, it makes sense of the rest of what he's going to say. For he's going to set up in verses 5 through chapter 2, especially from verse 5, from verse 5 down to verse number 10, uh, this theme of what it means to be in fellowship with God. What does it mean to be in fellowship with God, and what does it mean to be in fellowship with one of Another. So as we look at our second theme, beginning with chapter 1, verse 5, the theme for this section is God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So coming and having fellowship is to come out of darkness into the light. And here he gives people certain tests for having fellowship with God based on five conditional clauses. Now let's look at some of these clauses. Verse number 6 of chapter 1. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if we say we have fellowship, but we're walking in darkness, then we really do not have fellowship. And John is writing so that people would have fellowship. So the first thing to having fellowship is not to be deceived, to know that whether we have fellowship or not with God. The next thing he says, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So how do we have fellowship with one another? Through the shed blood of Jesus. That's number two. Number three, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the first part of recognizing our need for a Savior and the need for the blood of Jesus to cleanse us is by admitting our sin and by seeing ourselves the way that sin has presented us separated from God that needs to be brought near to God. And the only way to do that is by the Spirit. And then he says in verse number nine, this is the fourth one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we have fellowship with God. We're not deceiving ourselves by thinking we have fellowship, but yet still walking in darkness. We recognize the need for Jesus' blood to purify us. And that is the first step is by knowing that we have sin that needs to be forgiven and that has been forgiven. And then if we confess our sins, and the word confess there does not mean name off every single sin you've ever done. 
but it means I make a confession. I confess my sin. It, the Greek word literally means to say the same thing as. We're saying the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin, and that is that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And then finally, he says in verse number 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So all of these uh, things in chapter one that he's writing is so that people would come to know Christ and have fellowship with him and fellowship with one another in the church to come out of darkness and walk in the light. And then as we go in chapter 2, still on our second point here, as we go into chapter 2, he uses this, uh, this title, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. So now it seems that he is writing unto those who are in the church, my little children. So everything in chapter 1 was leading us to fellowship in the church, how we get right with God, how we come out of darkness into light and have fellowship with God. Now as we enter chapter 2, we know that if we're in, in the light, if we're in Christ, our sins are forgiven, we still sin. Even after we become born again, we still sin. So he starts out chapter 2 by saying, my little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate means one who is, is standing for us on our behalf. When, when our sin comes to accuse us, we have an advocate pleading our case, not based upon us, but based upon his blood. When the accuser of the brethren comes in to accuse us of our sin, we have one pleading our case. We have an advocate with the Father, not based upon our righteousness, but based upon the fact that he is righteous. And if he is righteous, then we know that we are righteous. For verse 2 of chapter 2 says, For he is the propitiation. That word propitiation means he's the atoning sacrifice of our sin. And not for ours only, but for the sin of the whole world. So John's doing a couple of things in these first two sections. Number one, he's giving an eyewitness account of the incarnation. He's showing how to come in fellowship with God. And then once we're in fellowship with God, what happens if we were to sin? We have an advocate. And this advocate is based on the fact that he is the atoning sacrifice, that he is Christ come in the flesh and died, physically died for our sin. As we saw last week, some of the Gnostic beliefs is Jesus really didn't die on the cross. You know, somehow he was switched with somebody else. And John's saying that's not the case, that he died for our sin. He's the atoning sacrifice. As we go into chapter 2, our third section here is in chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And this is the knowledge of God and love for others. The knowledge of God and the love for others. He says, a second test of fellowship with God is whether one truly knows God. A person who disobeys Jesus' commandments, and we'll talk about that in a moment, does not know Him. So knowing God is very critical to John's writing. He says, you will find three matters emphasized in this section. Walking in the truth, walking in the light, means to be obedient to Christ's commands. And his command is an old one, that we love one another. 
And failure to love is to hate and thus to walk in darkness. And by implication, thus to live in sin despite denying one's own sins. So in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So that is very critical because we'll see this a few times in 1 John as well. Whoever says or if someone says, basically they're saying one thing, but by their life they are doing and living in a total opposite way. It says, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected, that we would know that we know him. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you've heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. So he's saying, I'm writing an old commandment, but the old commandment is a new commandment. So I'm giving you a new commandment, but the new commandment is an old commandment. What does this mean there? Well, the commandment is love. The Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two hangs all the law and the prophets. So the whole duty of those under the old covenant law was to love, to love God and one another as you love yourself. And Jesus, what he does with his disciples later on, takes that commandment, that old commandment, and puts a new twist on it. For now he looks at them and he says, love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus' commandment, this old commandment that's also a new commandment, is the commandment of love. And loving as Christ has loved us. He says in verse number 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother, whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going. So the knowledge of God is knowing God that we can love others the way God loves us. As we go down to our final section on this slide is verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2. This is the exhortation to endurance and to not love the world. Notice all the reasons given for writing are intended to reassure the believers that they are true children of God. So he's writing this to reassure those in the church that are reading this that have not been persuaded by the Antichrist that they are the true children of God, that their sins are forgiven, that they know Christ and the Father, and they are strong and have overcome the evil one. And the believers are to have love for the brothers and sisters, not love for the things of the world. For he goes on the right, do not love the world, in verse 15, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there we find that love is the supreme thing. Love for others, not love for the world. Because all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those things draw us away from God. And then as we go to our next slide, as we see in chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, 
This is where John is going to talk about the Antichrist. I remember years ago, I was teaching a class on Bible prophecy, and I asked the question. I said, somebody give me the biblical definition of Antichrist. And of course, I got, you know, a world leader who's going to dominate the world and, you know, an end-time person. But that's, the word Antichrist is never used in that context, even though people connect it. Antichrist is used right here in 1 John, and it has nothing to do with the end of the world, nothing to do with a, you know, a, a figure that's going to rule the world or anything like that. But however, John does say that in the last times, in the last days, in the last hour, Antichrist would come. The only problem is those Antichrists in those last days were, he considered, in his day. And that's why, as we will talk in the book of Revelation in this, in this study of the epistles, that's why all the New Testament writers expected the end to come in their days, to come very, very soon. You know, we see that when Paul tells Timothy, you know, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Well, he wasn't warning Timothy about something that's going to happen 2,000 years from when that was written. He's not saying, you know, in 2,000 years, perilous times are going to come, so you can just take it easy now. No, he's saying right now in these days, perilous times are coming. So John here, in verse number 18, he says, Children, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. He doesn't say it's the last times, it's the last days. John says it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. And then he reemphasizes, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So John declares in his day it was the last hour. You know, if you were to tell me, hey, I'm coming over to your house in an hour, and then you don't show up for 2,000 years, I'm going to think you cannot tell time. John is emphasizing all the New Testament writers emphasize, they tell the church to be watchful. They tell the church to be sober because they're expecting things to happen in their lifetime. And he says, here's the sign that the last hour, Antichrist will come. And now there are many, many Antichrists. You know, he, he will go on to say that you've heard Antichrist is coming and now already is in the world. But these Antichrists have nothing to do with the end of the world. They have to do with the denying the person of Jesus Christ. And about these antichrists and their followers, here's what John says in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. So he's saying that they were the kind of believers, quote believers, who claimed to be walking in the light, who claimed to know God, who claimed to follow Jesus, but their beliefs and their lifestyle did not back that up. And John says they went out from us because they were not of us. And if they were of us, they would have continued with us. So he denounces this Antichrist. And then he contrasts the Antichrist and their teaching about Christ with the believers who have the true Christ, the true anointing on the inside of them. So you have those with the Antichrist and those who are pro-Christ, who are for Christ. And he says about these who are for Christ is that you have been anointed 
with the Holy One and have all knowledge. So he appeals to the Holy Spirit that they have as he warns them against the Antichrist. And then as we continue on in chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10, we have God's love for his children. And he's going to go back and talk about this love. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And he emphasizes that being the children of God, walking in the light, means believers do not make a practice and a habit of sinning. Believers do not make a practice and habit of sinning. For the true criteria, or two criteria, for remaining in the truth and being children of the Father is number one, those who do righteousness. And those who do righteousness are born of Him, belong to Him, and abide in Him. Secondly, those who purify themselves are children of God. And he goes on to say that the children of God do not continue in sin. Now, John clearly knows that Christians do sometimes sin. He just wrote in chapter 2, I write to you that you do not sin, but if anyone sins. So John recognizes that Christians do sometimes sin. But what he has in mind is not a temporary moral lapse or even character struggles of things we may struggle with as Christians. But what he's concerned about is sin as a settled habit and as a way of life. God's children do not live in open, continual, egregious, rebellious sin. That is not their way of life. And the ultimate proof of that is their love. He says in verse number four of chapter three, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. And he appeared to take away sin. In verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one continues to live this life of sin. And then as we uh, continue on in chapter three, verse 11 through 24, we have the communal love and confidence in Christ. Now he goes back to this theme of love. So he kind of goes, Antichrist, theme of love. You know, false teachers, the theme of love. Walking in the light, the theme of love. Not living in habitual sin, the theme of love. He goes back and forth throughout all of these themes. And he says here in chapter 3, 11 through 24, what distinguishes the children of God from the children of the devil is choosing love over hatred. The message has always been to love one another, and namely loving each other as Christ has loved us. He then gives more various tests about abiding in Christ. First, those who abide in Christ, their hearts do not condemn them. And if their hearts are not overweighted with guilt, then God, who knows their hearts, will not condemn them either. Second, if they believe in God's Son and they keep the command to love others, they are clearly dwelling in God and God in them. Third, the Spirit who affects the mutual indwelling and guidance into the truth provides added assurance. So here's how he's saying that you know that you have fellowship with God. Notice he says in chapter 3 and verse number 22. He says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. 
and do what pleases him. Well, what are his commandments? Is it the Ten Commandments? Is it the 600 and plus commandments in the law? What are the commandments of Jesus? Here's what he says in verse 23 of chapter 3. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, as he gave his command. The commands for the believers are very simple. Believe in Jesus Christ and love one another. That is what all of Christianity boils down to. Faith in Jesus and who he was and love for the brothers as evidence of the Spirit's indwelling and a change of heart and life. As we move on to chapter 4, he begins chapter 4 saying to test the Spirit's in chapter 4, 1 through 6, here in particular, the major teaching of the false prophets is exposed. The clear evidence that they do not speak by the Holy Spirit is their denial of Christ's incarnation. This is the spirit of Antichrist. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know that the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. He says, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and now is already in the world. So here's that. he says, that's how we know the spirit of truth versus the spirit of error, by confessing that Jesus has come in the flesh. And then he goes back into this section on love highlighting God's love in chapter 4 verse 7 down through chapter or down through verse number 21 he starts in verse number 7 of chapter 4 beloved let us love one another for love is of God so again he goes back to love uh, he goes on to say that God's love is perfect love and perfect love cast out fear he says, for fear has to do with judgment in verse number 18. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So God's love takes away the fear of judgment and punishment from us. Therefore, we can receive his perfect love. As we move into chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we find the community's confession of faith. The true children of God are those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They are also those who love one another, which are the other children of God. Verses 6 through 8 gives us the best hints at what the heresy is about. The false teachers apparently believe something significant happened to Christ at his baptism, but that at his death, but that his death was not something that God was involved in. The true spirit bears witness to both Christ's incarnation and his atonement. What he's saying here is in chapter 5, verse 6, this is he who came by blood and water, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by blood. And the Spirit is one who testifies the Spirit of truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. That's Jesus' birth and Jesus' death. And through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' birth and Jesus' death, they all testify to who Jesus is. He is who he said he was not who these, who these antichrists are saying that he was. As we bring the letter to a close, we find in chapter 5, verse 13 through 21, here's the community's assurance of faith. 
In drawing to a close, John again states his purpose for writing. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He just said in John chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. If you deny the Son, you have death. He says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And John says, I write these things, verse 13, that you would believe in the name of the Son of God and you may know that you have eternal life. The recent division and departure of the Antichrist has, com- has created division and confusion. John is writing to bring unity to the churches, clarity to the believer's confession about who Jesus is, and confidence in their position before God. He briefly returns to the topic of sin and counsels to pray for those who sin and waver in their faith, but not to pray for those whose sin is a type that leads to death. Here he makes a very uh, obscure statement. He talks about there is a sin that does not lead to death and a sin that does lead to death. And there's been much speculation about what the sin that leads to death is, whether it's a physical act that leads to a physical death or whether it's some type of spiritual death. More than likely here, it presumably refers to those who have left the community, who have have disfellowshipped themselves, who have denied the Son. For to have the Son, you have life. To deny the Son, you do not have life. That's death. To not have life is death. So probably the, the sin that leads to death is the sin of these in the church who have denied Jesus and left fellowship with the church. So this whole letter is about wrong views of Jesus and how to correct them. And it's that if you have a wrong view of Jesus, then you will ultimately have a wrong view of God. And if you have a wrong view of God, you'll have a wrong view about the behavior that God desires for us to have. And that behavior, which is ultimately expressed in not showing love but showing hatred, comes from worshiping a God that is not true. Thus, the whole biblical story stands or falls on God's love being manifested by His entry into our world of flesh and blood and dying for us in order to redeem us. So the whole issue at hand here is for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the summary of the whole emphasis that the epistle of John, the first epistle of John is getting at, is that we have life in the Son by knowing truly who Jesus is. So that is our walk through through 1 John. We didn't, you know, hit every verse, but there is so much good stuff in there. So I pray that you will take 1 John and that you will just go back through 1 John and uh, glean from all of these topics. Now what I want to do for just the next couple of minutes is to walk through 2 John and 3 John very quickly. 2 John is 13 verses long. We said last week that the writer identifies himself as the elder, and he's writing to the elect lady and her children, which is probably just a reference to the church and the people in the church that he's writing to. In the first three verses of 2 John, these verses form the address and greeting 
written to the lady and her children, John's emphasis on true believers as those who know the truth. He says, but also all you who know the truth because the truth that abides in us will be with us forever. The greeting anticipates both sections of the letter that follows. Verse number three says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. In verses four through six, these verses urge that we love one another. This is what it means to walk in the truth and thus walk in obedience to God's command, love. In verses 7 through 11, these verses warn against the many deceivers who have gone out into the world, presumably the same ones that John was talking about in 1 John. The content of their deception is a denial of the incarnation. The content of the warning for the lady is to deny hospitality to such people. For anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked works. So he goes on to talk about these deceivers, again, calling them antichrist. And to watch that you may not lose what you've worked so hard to build. In verses 12 through 13, there's the urgency of the warning that's made clear by the fact that this brief and hurried note must be written and sent off before the elder can find time to visit. And these things and say these things personally and at length. So there is an urgency to get the word out about these false teachers. As a miniature first John, this short letter reinforces the role of the incarnation and of love in the biblical story. So 13 very short verses, but emphasizes one of the major themes of first John. As we walk through third John, we see third John. I can move that slide. Uh, third John we have 15 short verses. Uh, there's, an, again, a traditional salutation. This time, the elder writes to the beloved Gaius. Beloved Gaius. And he says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified of your truth. As indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So verses 3 through 8 are about Gaius, who received it, commended him, uh, or Gaius who received the letter, commending Gaius because of the good report about his faithful walking in the truth. In this case, pointing especially to his faithfulness in showing hospitality to some strangers who went out for the sake of the name. So Gaius had welcomed in some strangers, and John is commending him on that. He says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. So he's commending him on welcoming in true, sincere brethren. Then in verses 9 and 10, these verses condemn a man, a man named Diotrephus. And Diotrephus, uh, who provoked the writing of the letter regarding this issue, at the same time there is also some tension over the elder's authority. So he says in verse number 9, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephus, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to 
uh, who want to and puts them out of the church. So just as Gaius welcomed people into the church, Diotrephus does not welcome them into the church, but refuses them. So when he praises Gaius, he condemns Diotrephes. In verses 11 and 12, these verses commend uh, Demetrius. So here's our third character, Demetrius, who carried the letter, urging that he be shown hospitality. He says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. And then verses 13 is the concluding verses from the elder who wrote it. It says, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Although the smallest document in the New Testament, 3 John enhances the biblical story because of the role it plays in giving us insight into the Christian community and to hospitality. So we see three characters in 3 John. Gaius, who is commended because he has shown hospitality to true brethren. Diotrephes, who is condemned because he has refused brethren. And then Demetrius, who's carrying the letter that has John's stamp of approval that he should be welcomed in. So again, 2nd and 3rd John are small letters, uh, but we can still glean some things from them. So this is our walkthrough of the epistles of John. And uh, I pray that you would go back and take these epistles and reread through them, again, looking at the themes and seeing if you can put all of this together. Well, we hope you have a good rest of the day. Thank you for watching and joining us. God bless.